be one journalist of the year from the American Conservative Union at CPAC 2015. You like me right now. You like me. He's Jim Garrity. How do you like me now? Now that I'm on my She's a broadcast professional who's got pop culture by the throat, and she won't let go. Crank up the radio. Run for your lives, everyone. This is not a drill. She's broadcast pro Mickey White. How do you like me now? This is the Jim and Mickey Show. Welcome to the Jim and Mickey Show, brought to you by Late April Insurance. Yes, after buying a reverse mortgage from President Heller from 24... And Fred Thompson's evil twin, you might ask why you need insurance for just two weeks out of the year. In fact, it's a fortnight that includes 420, pot day. What could go wrong? But remember, the laws of the cosmos require terrible things to happen in late April, whether it's the assassination of Abraham Lincoln or the birthday of Adolf Hitler, the Bay of Pigs, Deepwater Horizon, school shootings and terrorist attacks, or merely the release of the Jungle Book movie, Irritating Dave. No! Or perhaps worst of all, the New York Jets drafting Blair Thomas. Remember, April showers <laughs> will probably bring flash floods. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. I didn't realize it's so close to home. Call up late April insurance and make sure you don't have to scream May Day until May Day. <laughs> I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. And welcome to the late April edition of our show. Mickey, am I correct that this April seems to be a season of departures? That is certainly one way to look at it, Jim Garrity. Uh, thanks again for joining us all here at the Jim and Mickey show. I'm Mickey White here. And uh, I got to tell you, Jim, April so far has kind of sucked. Um, <laughs> and this week in particular has sucked a lot more than usual. Now, all of our listeners kind of know that I have an attachment to my friends that live on the television <laughs> and uh-huh. they have been changing and they have been making decisions without asking me um, about any of them. And it's, and, and, and thus far, you know, I kind of hate this week. That's all I'm saying. And one of my favorite shows in the world for all of our listeners who already know this is Kelly and Michael. And as of this recording, he announced um, earlier this week that he would be leaving Kelly and Michael. Michael Strahan is leaving me. This is how I look at it, by the way. That I wake up every morning and he and I get together and we have coffee and we do work together. And now he's leaving me. I am devastated. (laughs) Um, I can only imagine how Kelly feels. But I will tell you this. She was not on the first episode that was recorded after the announcement was made. And I do not know if that was a scheduled day off for her. Mm. Well, a couple of things to note, just in case, I mean, by this point, Michael Strahan seems sufficiently ubiquitous and, and seen everywhere. Everyone knows, but just in case you don't, he's the former uh, New York giants uh, defensive end uh, was an all pro. A lot of people said that when he was playing defensive line, the best way to run the ball was to try to put it directly between his teeth. <laughs> uh, the biggest gap he leaves. And, and after being a, you know, likable, uh, successful player and then kind of making the transition to being a, a, you know, game analyst and studio analyst for Fox sports, he started branching out like, like, uh, man, the last football player I can think of uh, who branched out like that into, you know, Phil, a TV and other programs uh, like that. Mickey probably was um, OJ Simpson, uh, <laughs> you know, and he's and became the, the, you know, guest host on these things. And now, uh, yes, he is leaving Kelly and Michael, but he's going to join Good Morning America, which is a fairly, you know, 
for a guy, you know, for an ex-jock to be uh, suddenly this multimedia personality. Which is a direct competitor of the Today Show, and I totally understand why GMA did what they did. And I even, like, to a certain degree, understand the business decision um, that Michael Strahan has done. But I think what he didn't realize, and I say this as having watched the first show after the announcement now, and seeing him discussing it with us, not only, you know, there was a big difference, or there is a big difference between being Michael Strahan, the Hall of Fame, all-pro, all-time leading sack machine of the New York Giants, and doing free agency dealings, and being the guy who comes and hangs out with us in the mornings, and then decides to leave. Because apparently, according to him, and and as he was discussing it this morning and his transition to GMA, which is actually the owner and is owned by me and AB, the the actual property of the live live show, the Kelly and Michael show. Um, But when he came on this morning, apparently the feedback was so severe after his announcement that he, he literally said today, I cannot die. In fact, I haven't even left the show yet. I'll be here until September. I tended to disagree with him. <laughs> um, I was you know, trying to prepare myself accordingly. Sitting Shiva. <laughs> yeah. So, Mickey, why, and, and maybe this is a, uh, a good foreshadowing of, of the, the fan resistance to transitions that you see. Uh, we'll discuss probably a little later in this segment, but why? Like, why is it so terrible for you to, to you that he's leaving this show and going to another morning show? Okay. Yes, Kelly and Michael are getting a divorce, which is beyond my even comprehension. Since Michael's been on it, my career has been such that I usually have time in whatever market I was in. It was on, and so it became part of my morning ritual. Like I said. And so not only do I feel like Kelly and Michael are getting a divorce, there's a part of me that feels like he has left me as well. And all of the other viewers that have, you know, dedicated ourselves to developing this relationship with him. And um, so it was like I said, I thought it was really interesting seeing the difference between, you know, how he and according to TMZ and other reports, they backed up and I'm quoting now a Brinks truck robbery amount of money to get him to make this move that move was to take their star of their show that's on a syndicated program and put it firmly as an anchor on good morning america which is their obviously stalwart morning program pretty bad out there when you have to pirate your staff from your own programs (laughs) they're not even picking him off from the competition right you're not (laughs) picking him from the competition and so yeah so it's pretty crazy and you know it certainly talks a great deal about how the business world works but I, i i just i think that there was a huge i think he was shocked by the response and the difference between being michael strahan the guy who you know was beloved by all the new yorkers etc to Michael Strahan, who is beloved by America. <laughs> Michael Strahan, and, apostate. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, they do the best stuff, and I just don't understand how they're going to do it with someone else. And I'm sure someone said this about Kathy, and I'm sure someone said this about Regis, but it's my understanding it took Kelly approximately six months of everyday auditions with people to find Regis' replacement to find that kind of chemistry that just comes so naturally between them. And so I can only imagine how Kelly felt yesterday um, when the announcement was made publicly 
And the first thing out the gate was like E Online is making suggestions as to who her next guest host should be, and they were like two white dudes and a chick. Um, if you need if you need a little quiet time, uh, I'll understand. We'll we'll, we'll leave you to that. Um, but I, I would argue that this is okay. This is only the second biggest news of transition on the ABC. Um, Correct. It kind of was affirmed today. We'd heard these rumors for a while. Uh, I believe the actress's name is Stana Kadic. Uh, if you're going to be on a show that I'm going to be on, you better pronounce her last name properly, or I'm coming for you. That's that's Cottage. Cottage, yeah. okay, as in I have a nice cottage in the woods, <laughs> That's right. uh, which is apparently where she's going to be going to, uh, because after eight seasons on this show, and eight years is a very long time in for a primetime drama, uh, particularly one built almost entirely around the charisma and the, the chemistry between the two leads, um, she is departing the show, uh, mm. as is also the uh, uh, Lainey, the, the forensic pathologist who does all the autopsies. Uh, apparently, um, Nathan Fillion, the title character, is sticking around, and the rest of the cast is sticking around. But a lot of people are going to say that you know, look, the show was pitched crime-solving romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. How do you do it without the female lead? Mickey, like, I, I, I'm not. You know, people ask, me, "Are you in mourning?" You know about this. And uh, Mickey, I don't take these things as to heart the way you do. Um, <laughs> but I'm, left, I'm just kind of left befuddled of like, well, then what's the show going to be about? Well, look, they've already started this transition because they've got Rick running that stupid, like, PI business thing, whatever. And the thing about it is, is you and I have discussed, this show may have run its course. Mm -hmm. And it may have been more to the point that maybe Donna decided that she just didn't want to do this show anymore. And they were trying to work out a way to write her off the show. Maybe that explains some of the storylines that don't make as much sense in the last season or so. Um, I know they had trouble getting her to come back last year. Look, if anybody can pull off running a spinoff of their own show, I guess, it'd be Nathan Fillion because he's so he really is ruggedly handsome and quite charming, <laughs> as he says at the beginning. We'll take your word for that. Uh, uh, but, you know, as he says at the beginning of Castle, but K-Bex, as they're known, the couple – was really what this was all about. You know, ba- Basket um, was one of the things, and Casket, um, you know, Kate and Beckett and all of it. it. It's very hard to imagine them apart. It's very hard to imagine people caring past that point. I don't think Lainey leaving is nearly as big of a deal, obviously. Um, but I do think that it, I guess I assumed that they leave the show together. I didn't think that, he would try to continue on without her. I think they, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they do. It'll probably be horrible. But look, you know, what do I know? Well, I was going to say, the last couple episodes might be kind of noteworthy because after kind of growing disenchanted with the show, um, the last two or three have kind of caught my eye again. The first one being uh, one that was the idea of a magic genie lamp and the idea of finding these, uh, uh, something recovered from Turkey in a yeah. storyline that largely ignored the existence of ISIS and the civil war <laughs> going on in Syria and all these other things. <laughs> um, but it really, you ever watch a show that's been around a long time and you watch an episode and all of a sudden the characters and everyone's acting kind of like the way they did at the beginning of the show. And you start to wonder, has this been like a script that's been collecting dust that they never got around to using? Um, it just kind of felt like it was felt like very much the classic castle, even almost slapsticky, very funny, um, the idea of Rick Castle, a uh, very successful man of the world in Manhattan, completely believing in the existence of genies seemed um, 
unusual. Um, and then the the second yeah, most recent. Yeah, you love zombies and vampires. And that's what I'm wondering if with the new version of Castle, they try to tap into more of that kind of fun, exotic, supernatural thing mm. that he seems to enjoy so much. Kind of the Indiana Jones of TV, if you will. Yeah. Um, and then finally, this this week's episode, uh, in which they, they were very reliant on this new British former MI6 partner in the private investigating routine, this kind of, hi there, I'm Mary Sue um, type character. Uh, one of the things, for one moment, uh, Castle, who is generally played as a very goofy character, a guy who, um, you know, Nathan Havillian does comedy really, really well. All of a sudden, he had to play the tough guy. And he did it in a manner that I, I you know, being the Firefly fan that, fan that I am, Mickey, all of a sudden it's Captain Mal again. Like all of a sudden he has to play serious. <laughs> he has to play intimidating. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I have, you know, I've seen Nathan Fillion play this character before and I kind of miss it <laughs> because he w- definitely played a guy who was not somebody to be messed with on this previous series. So I have come up with the way to save Castle. Mickey, are you ready? I'm waiting. Okay. One, uh, they've had Adam Baldwin, uh, the outspoken conservative on Twitter, come in as uh, uh, a, a, another detective who's got very roughneck style. Uh, they're going to have Kaylee from Firefly come back in a cameo. Yeah. Basically, almost every Firefly actor has come back in one form or another. So make mm-hmm. the show a prequel to Firefly. Just reunite <laughs> the cast and just have them doing all that stuff and bring back the old strumming guitar thing and just make it, you know... Uh, an early prequel series that's involved in you know trying to solve Reaver murders in New York City or something like that. You don't need to change anything for the Reaver murders. There's plenty of those already happening in that. There you go. See, so that's my plan to save Castle <laughs> and or bring back my favorite show. Well, you know, you may be on to something there. I I can't promise you that the new showrunners are going to do anything like that. But what it does do, as I said, it it does make this last season make a little bit more sense. (laughs) And so I'm kind of hoping that that makes, you know, their opportunity to whatever they're doing with whatever this new recreation of Castle without Beckett, which, again, it just seems so ludicrous to me. Um, off tops yet, you know, who would have thought that Frasier would be the hit that it was either. So I don't know. I'm listening. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. And in the next segment, we're actually going to talk about a new show that's coming up. Um, so we are saying goodbye to some old friends and hello to some, oh, old friends as well. <laughs> so we'll be right back and we're going to be talking about the night manager. What in the hell's diversity? Well, I I could be wrong, but I believe uh, diversity is an old, old wooden ship that was used during the Civil War era. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. And Mickey, when you hear a British accent, what comes to your mind? Usually, Downton Abbey. Ah, okay. So... I was going to say many Americans have a bit of an inferiority complex when they hear a British accent. Uh, I generally know that when I listen to my colleague, Charlie Cook, and he tells me that it's quite good. I recently learned from a colleague living in uh, uh, London that the word quite generally means not what is about to follow. In other (laughs) words, quite, say, oh, that's quite good. 
Quite right the there. The British version of saying, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> That's so true. Having said that, if you're going to get chewed out, you want to get chewed out by a British accent because it's so much more dignified. It's so much more refined. It's so much more literate. So, Mickey, now that I'm... But this is different from the, the Scottish accent of Sean Connery, which I know gets a different reaction. It's, um, it's yeah, not it's Scottish, it's crap. reaction for me than the English accent, because I'd like to just real quick jump in before you go any further and remind you that my mother-in-law was British. So, uh, again, British accent does not work on me. What about an Australian accent? It's not better to get yelled at in a British accent, just in case anyone was curious. (laughs) (laughs) So you're no stranger to being chewed out and condescended to in a British accent, is what you're saying. Mickey, if I had to... I'll I'll take it off, but basically, if I had to be chewed out by someone with a British accent, you know, which actors would you put down as the ones who'd probably be the most quintessentially British in their ability to sneer at you, to look down at you, to make you feel about one inch tall. Probably your two top categories would be Hugh Laurie, best known for playing Dr. House Mm -hmm. on House, right? Yep. 101 Dalmatian. Oh, there you go. And then the second one would probably be Tom Hiddleston, and if people aren't recognizing the name, Loki Loki. from the Marvel movie. Or Hank Williams in the new uh, biopic. I emphasize Loki as in the character, not low-key in terms of the <laughs> mannerism of acting. Um, but so here are two of, you know, highly regarded actors. And I would say both, you know, if House wasn't a villain, <laughs> he certainly had his, um, uh, his sneering side, his utter disregard for everyone around him. And, of course, uh, you know, Loki is, has been the, you know, some would argue the most uh, uh, entertaining character of this so now, a new series, a limited series from AMC entitled The Night Manager, uh, based on a John Lacard uh, novel, um, basically is just putting these two actors at each other. Uh, basically, it's very clear Hugh Laurie is the bad guy, and it's, uh, Tom Hiddleston is the good guy. Um, it almost feels kind of like what the James Bond films used to be. Uh, before they were about giant death rays and things like that, it was about exotic locations and sinister figures and beautiful women on the arms of these sinister figures. Mm. Uh, and I'm enjoying it, Mickey, but I'm just observing. I just want to see these two British actors berate the audience. Just just turn to the cameras and tell us how terrible they are because I don't think there's anybody who does it any better. Oh, wow. So you who mock me for having my friends on TV have your enemies on TV? <laughs> Frenemies. Okay, so- I'll make an observation. I'm going to bet that based on your experience with your mother-in-law, there's going to be some agreement with this, Mickey. Uh-huh. Uh, during the, the argument about the, all the Star Wars films, people have said, ah, you know, one of the reasons Return of the Jedi isn't as good is that the Imperial officers are all played by uh, American actors in Return of the Jedi. In the previous films, they are played by British actors. And if there's anything history has taught us, it's that the British are just inherently terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Something about the dental work or more. It is, without a doubt, the chill of cold blood that runs through their veins. I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, and it, you know, it's one of those where you know, people will probably say, oh, what about the German? Yeah, okay, or- so as someone who is not at all familiar with the novel or the background story of The Night Manager, one, the title itself, because I'm not familiar with it, sounds really boring. Like, we're talking about a janitor here. So if you could, like, ex- elaborate just a little bit about the actual storyline is it is it a mystery series or book thing what is it sure 
So um, the Hugh Laurie character, Richard Roper, uh, appears to be this distinguished global businessman who's involved in charities and goes to Davos and all that stuff. But actually, no, he's in fact one of the world's most notorious arms dealers. And he's constantly putting all kinds of dangerous weapon into the hands of terrible people. And people in third world countries are, you know, regimes are suppressing up, uh, uprisings and massacring civilians and things like that. Um, technically, uh, Jonathan Pine, the Tom Hiddleston character, is a, uh, a hotel night manager. Uh, his job, first in a fancy luxury hotel and the... Uh, uh, uprising against Hosni Mubarak back in 2011, uh, and then later into a Swiss uh, location. He's you know he works almost like what was the uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel, the, oh, yeah, the, the yeah. secret the secret society of Maitre D's. Yeah. <laughs> he would fit in well with there. He's a guy who they, they eventually allude that he's got military experience, uh, but now he is a guy who handles anything you could possibly need to the wealth, the rich and famous. Until he figures out what the Hugh Laurie character is up to and basically realizes he's kind of drawn by a moral compulsion. I have to do something to stop this guy who's sending arms to, you know, every bad regime. So basically, it's very much the the familiar undercover cop story. You know, we're going to put you into his organization. We're going to have you insinuate yourself into the life of the villain. And can you, you know, hold on to your moral compass or will you feel kind of seduced Mm -hmm. by the... Uh, the temptations of power there, and it just it feels like I said very Bond, James Bondian, um, and it's not uh, again. It's just two really good actors in this who who basically can you know. Is this something that chicks will actually watch, or is this straight up like a dude show? No, I, okay. This is very much the it's it's not a lot of explosions and stuff like that. It's it's very much a. Uh, almost a psychological spy. Thriller. You don't go to John Lacar because you, there will never be a Michael Bay version of a John Lacar movie. Got you. There are no Transformers in a John Lacar novel. There are no. I think on a more subtle level, though, Jim, you have to admit that power clashes between men who are understated in their presence, not, you know, big muscle heads who will knock your head off, but guys that talk quietly and make people do things with subtle intimations of the use of power are fascinating to women. They scare me because I can't keep up with them. But a guy with a glint in his eye that changes the world by three syllables whispered to his aide on the speakerphone, that's somebody that I think is interesting to women. Well, yes, there's obviously there's a seduction of power to women. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, women are attracted to powerful men. Um, That's been proven time and time again. My girlfriends and I always called those particular type of men, though, winkers. Um, because or they wankers, were the, or wankers in the no, British version, wankers, not wankers, and and the reason being is that they winked at everyone. And years ago, I used to uh, run a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma charity here um, in town, and and put to well an event for the charity, not the charity itself, but an event for the charity. And one of the things that we did was a bachelor auction, and we would get someone, and one of the qualifications we would try to find someone who was a winker. And the reason is they they basically flirted with everyone in the room. Mm. So being able to flirt with every single person in the room made someone who may not have, like, you know, in our bachelor auction, for instance, someone who may not have, you know, the resume or the pedigree that you would think would be suddenly very interesting to women. Here's this guy who's just, you know, a random guy, but he's a winker and he goes for more money. Am I am I correct, uh, Mickey, that a winker always kind of conveys a certain amount of intelligence, a certain amount of uh, – there, there's something going on behind those eyes that they're not telling you? 
Uh, yes. And okay. they're always up to no good. Multi-level mm. messages. Yes. Okay. In that and it's case, all like, done with a wink. Yeah. And maybe this is what I think is making this show so intriguing, is that this is very much going to be a psychological and intellectual uh, contest. I'm sure at some point they'll be shooting at each other in a fist fights and things like that. But it's very much this um, two actors who are conveying that and maybe you know, based on their most famous roles playing against type. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you, first of all, I assume you've seen um, uh, Mickey, the brilliant old British comedy series Blackadder. Why would you assume that? Wow. Okay. So <laughs> you're missing a whole world of subtle British humor, Mickey. Yeah. I'm like, why would why would you ever assume that? Then, no. Starring assume Rowan nothing. Atkinson, Rowan, better known as Mr. Oh, Bean. That explains exactly right there. Oh, okay. All right. Yes, I've seen Mr. Bean or whatever okay. his name is. Well, you know, Black Adder was these series of, uh, of you know sketches or, or short stories about British history, in which Hugh, you know, they always had this recurring group of actors, and Hugh Laurie was one of them. And he usually played the upper class twit who yep. didn't know what the heck was going on, or you know anything was going on around him. But he had money, and Black Adder could manipulate him. Yes. So you, you know, so then you know, along comes Hugh Laurie, like decades later on House, where he's playing the most acerbic, obnoxious, ni- you know, dark, nihilist, depressed sarcastic, you know, medical genius of all time. One, it shows it's a tribute to his range, but now I think most people see him as house. And so seeing him as the bad guy is a little bit of a surprise. And then, of course, seeing Loki the good guy, you know, all, all of a sudden, all of this kind of um, uh, sinister conniving and all of this persona that he had developed so well in the Marvel movies is now all of a sudden the good guy. And I just kind of feel like maybe, the, you know, this, like, this, this is a series that looks really good, but even if, like, nothing else had worked out, the casting seemed interesting enough uh, to make this watchable and and intriguing and all that. And you and and the best part about this, as I now understand, is that it's a limited time commitment. Yes, it is a six episode miniseries. Uh, first one was last night. I'm sure it's available on demand, and uh, uh, possible it'll all go bad. Um, but actually, I was going to say, had we you know in our last segment discussing Castle and this concept of shows that they have an idea. You know, after a while, it runs out of steam. It runs out of its own narrative momentum. You've done everything with the characters. Look, I'm I'm intrigued by the idea of these. You know, look, we, all year we've been raving about the people versus O.J. Simpson. <laughs> you know, you couldn't run uh, a documentary series going on forever because at some point you have to say no. This and this is what happened to them. Um, right. So again, maybe, you know, I here, let's hear it for these limited series and this idea of a story with a beginning, a middle, I'm and an end. Fan and, of that. I'm a huge fan of the limited series, especially if the concept is such that it is not supported in a series form. Mm. Uh, one of the ones that comes to me almost immediately is one that ABC did several years back called Flashback. Mm. Well, that one was supposed to be a length- lengthier series, wasn't it? And it just simply... I don't think so. I really okay. don't. And if it was, that would have been a mistake. Um, it was perfectly encapsulated in the one season that it existed. And it would have been very difficult for them to keep that universe going. Mm. But there were several others like that. And, you know, a lot of these shows kind of start out as summer starter shows. And then they get picked up and lengthened, et cetera, and twisted and changed. Um, But there's something to be said for doing six episodes and doing them exceptionally well and telling a good story. Um, One of the segments in one of our upcoming shows I definitely want to talk about is the fact that we are definitely, in general, as a viewing public, moving away from the formulaic programming and looking for more interesting things to watch and kind of gather our entertainment. But, I mean, honestly, as an American, is there anything more evil than 
an Englishman anyway. A German? Everything sounds scarier if it's in German. Everything sounds scarier if it's, you know, given to you in a British accent. As Americans, we're like, ooh, scary accent. Um, Don't like that. Um, The only one that probably could get away with it is, like, someone from South America or Colombia because they have the cutest little accents in the whole world. Interestingly, the other uh, Tom guy, Tom Wilkinson, is a fantastic British bad guy. He played the... uh the British general in one of those uh, Revolutionary War series. He plays the bad guy in one of the uh, Rush Hour movies. I mean, he's everywhere, and he's a terrific bad guy. So let's hear it for British guys named Tom. Yeah! (laughs) Woo! There's our demographic. And remember, if you want a cute accent, think of El Chapo. (laughs) We'll be right back after this. You, from Paytel Records, 22 explosive hits, 22 original stars, gallery. Oh, it's so nice to be with you. The great Sammy Davis Jr. Ooh, the candy man can. Liver snaps traits are made with real liver, and dogs love them. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Mickey White, along with my co-host, Jim Garrity. And one of the things that is the most popular accessory in Hollywood right now is baby Jim just go ahead and get yourself one go out and like grab you know one or two now are these the the premium uh American made babies um uh Mickey are they kind of the cheap uh imports that they're they're getting from Africa these are these are in fact designer babies these are the kind of babies that make people lose their minds in some cases um some of the most beautiful people in the world right now are breeding and um i can only assume that you know someday they'll grow up and ryan gosling's daughter or or son rather will actually date ryan reynolds daughter and then they will have the most beautiful child that has ever existed upon the planet ever um, but that seemingly is the thing in Hollywood right now. Several Hollywood starlets are coming out as being pregnant. And actually, Chrissy Teigen, wife of John Legend, as you know, listeners of the show know, I'm a big fan of his, just had her baby. And she named her Luna. This was a very controversial pregnancy in the sense that they had struggled a great deal to get pregnant. She was very open about using in vitro fertilization. And they chose the sex of the baby. And so, as you can imagine, some people had some issues with that. I did not because being a woman who, you know, obviously everybody has their own, people always like to talk about choices and things like that, but everybody has to deal with their own situation. And I know that they had had a great deal of fertility issues. And if they, you know, what they had the opportunity to have a daughter and they may not have an opportunity to have a second child, then go with it. Um, that's their choice. That's what they did. But they had a beautiful little girl and they named her Luna Simone. And, um, actually Chrissy, who's, you know, obviously a model and beautiful and gorgeous has been posting throughout. She's absolutely hysterical. If you follow her on Twitter, um, she's a great follow just for entertainment value because she's legitimately tweets out things that you have a feeling she was sitting on our couch and just popped into her head, which are always my favorite. But she posted a picture of her and the baby Luna, and the and I I I saw it was so cute. It was it was adorable. She was sitting on the front porch, and she's got the baby in her arms as she leans over. And I retweet this out to my followers, and I say to them, "Oh, look, she's so tiny." And someone writes back, "Well, in comparison to the boob." <laughs> um- and I realize when I look at the picture again. Because I wasn't, you know, I'm a girl. I wasn't really thinking about it. I'm a chick. I looked at the baby. I was like, oh, 
I realized that this person may have had a valid point to have been made. That's all I'm saying. Um, you know, Mickey, we kind of like to, to kind of laugh at Hollywood and we see them as being uh, wildly narcissistic and shallow and uh, self-obsessed and um, lacking in any real core values. And, and by and large, we're right. Mickey, but do you think – is it fair to think when you see a trend of, of Hollywood, you know, uh, lots of folks in Hollywood having baby at once, is it really based as a trend or is it just coincidental that everyone has children at the same time? Do you think anybody's like, oh, she got pregnant, now I have to get pregnant too? No, I don't think that is the case. What I do think it is is much more of a trend that has happened in Hollywood um, kind of in previous years but not something that we've seen in our generation until recently, which is that young starlets will stop their career and go have kids and then come back and start acting again. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that didn't happen before. Like, if they went off to have kids, you know, th- there were always issues in the middle and things of whatever. And in this case, they just keep it rolling. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, it, it's, it's really interesting to me because it's almost a return to kind of the old Hollywood style of behavior of we date actors and we have children with actors, and we keep to our own. <laughs> we don't want to pollute the actor gene pool with non-actors. It's actor eugenics. Maybe. And non-beautiful people. <laughs> That's right. right. And non-beautiful people, which is also perfect because people came out this week with their you know, world's most beautiful people. And uh, considering how – I'm guessing it was not that paragon of struggling motherhood, the icon – uh, of this this difficult work motherhood uh, balance that we've discussed in the past, Mickey uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, by any chance? <laughs> no, no. Oddly enough, she was not chosen as the cover girl for People's Most Beautiful Person, and it was, in fact, a woman this year. And the most beautiful person was Jennifer Aniston. Really? Yeah. And mm. what's fascinating about this is, it's once again they've selected a woman over forty. Okay, yay, I guess. All right, fine. Um, I wouldn't think have been... that one speaks to their demographic more than yeah. anything. Um, but two, I think that it's fair to say that Jennifer Aniston has held up very well over time. She still looks really good. I'd like a closer look myself before I sign on to that. <laughs> That's my boy, Dave. <laughs> Dispute uh, that that she's in fine shape and looking very good for uh, an age that is really not that old, uh, in, you know, by most comparisons, maybe by Hollywood standards. But Mickey, what is what is Jennifer Aniston like? Like Friends went off during ended during the Bush administration, correct? Um, what what she been? I know she was in that horrible Bosses movie and then maybe the sequel. Like what what she's been? What has she been doing? She's done several independent films. She's done several comedies. She started um, – she actually not only is the spokesperson for Smart Water, but she's also an investor. Um, okay. She has her own production company. Um, she's, she's like one of those people who has a bazillion businesses that no one really knows about. Mm. Um, but let's be honest. She could have lived off of the royalties and money that she made on Friends forever. She never yeah. had to work again. I also um, note that she probably is as you know if if her star has not faded much, whereas you know LeBlanc is doing his Showtime series. Uh, we've discussed Ross on the O.J. Simpson trial show. Um, anybody heard from from Courtney Cox lately or or <laughs> BB, whatever? That has been a, a moderate success called Cougar Town. 
Oh, that's right. That's okay. Right. Yeah. All right. You know, Don't like- worry. I keep up with my friends after they leave me on TV. <laughs> Obviously, okay. unlike you. Well, they're um, going to hang out with Michael Strahan soon. Shut up. You just shut up right now. You shut your filthy mouth. Judging um, by the tabloids, there's a lot of hanging out with Michael Strahan going on. <laughs> but, I, again, I look at it as, I, you know, there's, she does a lot of different things. She's done a lot of acting. And I think that she's in a position, obviously, after leaving Friends, where all of them are. They can pick and choose what they want to do. Mm-hmm. They don't have to work for money anymore. Um they can choose to work on passion projects. They can work on smaller projects, things that are against typecast, things like that. Um, so I think that that plays into it well. I think that she's one of the few that has held on to it by making some wise decisions post-Friends with some of the, the comedies and things that she's chosen to, di- to do and also understanding how her audience likes to see her. She, she did a role years ago in a movie called The Good Girl. And it was billed as a comedy. I need to tell anyone who has ever not seen it, don't go see it. It's not a comedy. It's a horrible, awful, terrible film. And she got these rave reviews for it, except for the the fans hated it. Mm. And so I think that she kind of recognized, like, stepping back a little bit from that. She also is a spokesperson for St. Jude's now. Um, You know, again, like I said, she does a great deal of work that's a little different than your traditional, I guess, Hollywood starlet. Mm. Because she's not going to go out and do a film that's going to make $20 But then again, she doesn't need to. Yeah. I remember, um, ironic discussing to bring up this name in the context of Jennifer Aniston, uh, Angelina Jolie. Because yeah. of their shared connection. But people were, you can't think about one without the other now. It's yeah. weird. Um, but Angelina Jolie, you know, usually if you're – let's say you're a Reese Witherspoon type. Like you're, you're a really successful Hollywood female actress. The, usually you're doing your fall picture, which is a Oscar bait historical drama. You know, I never learned how to read and losing to Kate Winslet. That, that's how that <laughs> works. And, and the other half of the year, you're doing a romantic comedy where, you know – you just you're so harried with your life, and you're dropping your papers, and you bump into the guy who just happens to be the widower architect uh, with this adorable son, and you know, and that basically, you know, if you're a female star, you're basically doing romantic comedies and your big Oscar dramas. And Angelina Jolie, at least for a long stretch there, in between her Oscar dramas, was doing action movies. She was doing The yeah. Tomb Raider and Salt, and these other ones were generally we, oh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. We were watching huh. Angelina Jolie kick somebody's ass up and down the screen in between her, you know, look at me emote Oscar films. Um, I, I guess that, you know, I couldn't see Jennifer Aniston in an action movie. <laughs> am I? Am I <laughs> oh, obviously you missed some of her attempts at action earlier on in her film career. Um, and when I say don't watch some of the films that are on her list at the IMDb, I mean, don't watch them. <laughs> and 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 there are several on there where you're like, oh no 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 no! Like she she's, it's not that she's not a great actress. It's that unfortunately for her and everyone that was part of a show like that, just like Seinfeld, just like everything else, it takes a while sometimes for you to to shake off a stereotype or a typecast. And in some cases, you can never shake it off. Um, she's been able to do so successfully by basically using her brand more than her acting ability. Mm. And I think. That's really interesting. But she, again, with her acting project, she's been able to be selective as they all have because they never really need to work again if they don't want to. 
Yeah, again, I, you know, I think there are probably a lot of struggling actors out there who would probably, uh, you know, love to have one cast that is one, one role that is iconic and that they get ty- always thought of and, and, and typecast of. Uh, but the actors who do end up with that tend to kind of complain about it and feel like, you know, I believe it was Leonard Nimoy who'd written his autobiography entitled I Am Not Spock. Uh, later nice. followed many years later where he wrote, then again, actually, I am Spock. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. That was generally, he, he, he made his peace with the character and the fact that people were going to be coming up to him and giving him yeah. the Vulcan salute for the rest of his life. So um, hopefully you yourself will, will be happy whatever role you have. Imagine being born to a famous family and everyone having expectations from that. Boy, that must be terrible. We'll, keep, we'll be discussing that in the next segment right after this. We got Living in the 90s, two and a half hours of the coolest songs on two CDs and two cassettes. Check it out. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. As my co-host and Gertie alluded in the close of the last segment, this segment we're going to talk about a documentary that takes us through the life of someone who is best known to America as the poor little rich girl, Gloria Vanderbilt. Some of you may know her as the designer, the original designer of, quote, designer jeans, the Gloria Vanderbilt jeans of the 70s and 80s. Some of you may know her as the mother of Anderson Cooper, of Anderson Cooper of CNN fame and and other shows like The Mole, which is what I remember him from. <laughs> and uh, some of you may not realize that she is literally the last of a an era, if you will, um, in that she was born to the original Vanderbilt family. One of the original two sons of the original commander, Vanderbilt. And so in this biopic, this, this, God, I don't even want to call it a documentary because it's so much more than that. Because it's the relationship between Anderson Cooper and his mother, Gloria. But the two of them sit down for HBO, and clearly this was a passion project for Anderson to get to know more about his mother's history, his family history, and the things that this woman had seen in her lifetime. And she's now 91 years old. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Vanderbilt name, that was they were the shipping magnets and then the railroad magnets that owned most of New York when Gloria was born in the 20s. I assume also founders of Vanderbilt University? They are the founders of everything. <laughs> okay. Like, I'm not kidding. You, and what's insane is to hear her talk about it because, of course, like her very first pictures were taken and she was on the cover of the New York Times when she was less than a year old um, as a Vanderbilt baby. And her father died when she was 18 months old. That's the American way. In Britain, babies get born into money by being born to royals. In America, they become royal by being born into money. Correct. <laughs> that is exactly what happened. And um, and her her father actually died at, at um, when she was 18 months old. Her mother and she had a very tumultuous relationship. It goes through all of the history of the Vanderbilt family. It goes through the history of, of what's really interesting is, is the tapestry of the Vanderbilt through our culture that we don't know about or don't see. 
And you talk about Vanderbilt University. Yes, of course they founded that. They founded everything. Um, when you're when she talks about it, though, those buildings, a lot of the buildings that we now see as historic sites, mm-hmm. she still refers to them as family home names. So you know when she talks about going over to like Aunt Susie's house. She's actually talking about a specific university that used to be someone's house, but has now been donated to the public. <laughs> a university. Mm. <laughs> and they use it for like a university or something now. 450 bedrooms and 600 bathrooms. And <laughs> yeah, house. Exactly. <laughs> and there are pictures of her in front of the Vanderbilt Castle um, with her nanny because, you know, back in the day, children were raised by their nannies. They weren't raised by their moms. Um, especially in upper, you know, east side aristocracy that is New York City and was, you know, the barons of that time. And certainly Vanderbilt is one of the men who built America, in my opinion. Um, He was a ruthless businessman, but he was really good at taking care of his family. And one of the most fascinating things, probably for some of our listeners in here and considering how close we are to tax day, um, is that the entire fortune, the way that the Vanderbilt fortune was set up was based on laws before 1913. So before they had tax laws and before they had inheritance taxes and things like that, that was a way for them to keep control of the money was to keep it in the family. And so, you know, we obviously see that with the Carnegie's and the Mellons, et cetera, and the Rockefellers. And of course the race is usually to make the most money and then give it all away. Mm-hmm. You know, as you're describing all this to me, Mickey, there are two things. You're, you're, you're eliciting two reactions in me that I'm honestly not sure I was capable of having. The first being a certain amount of sympathy for Anderson Cooper. Um, <laughs> for those of us who always think that he's deep down, he's always going to be the mole. Um, right. Uh, but, you know, so here, one here is this guy. I mean, we, we all kind of uh, we, we know some of our own family history and then some there's some chapters of our family's history that are always obscure and to be born into a famous family history in which there's lots of people know your family history really well because they remember living it right they remember reading about it in the papers and you probably grow up at least quasi sheltered from that um that all of a sudden you're going to, to to see this to hear this to encounter this um you know I, by the way Mickey, i recently found out that apparently uh, one of my grandfathers was a figure in the McCarthy hearings and suspected of being a communist. Wow. Oh, wow. Yes, and uh, pretty, you know, uh, needing to do more digging into that, including the possibility that he was a communist, uh, which would be bad. Have uh, you no decency, sir? You talk about yeah. bad, yeah, bad grandpa. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing. Like, if I'd been there, I probably would have been rooting for McCarthy against my grandfather. Um, right. That's the, the terrible right-wing person that I am. Um, but isn't it interesting that today we think of Anderson Cooper as the anchor on CNN, not as the Vanderbilt kid? That he really right. has gone like, – like love him or hate him as a news anchor um, or a daytime show host or any of the other stuff that he's doing. That he's not seen as – ah, you know, he's one of the – he's not seen as a Rockefeller. He's not seen as somebody who's just all part of that, that wealthy family. No, and in watching this documentary film, you will find out why that is. It is very clear. Um, every little tick that Anderson has ever admitted to on air becomes very clear where it came from and apparent um, in this documentary. Uh, he talks about his mother's life and and he knows about some of it. What you find absolutely, or I found absolutely fascinating in watching it was he obviously didn't know so much about his mother's life until he started asking her. 
And the name of this is called Nothing Left Unsaid. And I think that that is probably one of the best titles for something like this that I've ever seen because it's clearly a conversation with a child and his mother where he knows like their time is limited Mm -hmm. and he knows that he, she is the only real source of some of this information. And so in a way he's documenting it for him, for their family, you know, for memories of his mother who he clearly adores. But as an American watching it, you cannot help but understand that not only did Vanderbilt build America, Gloria Vanderbilt certainly took a great deal from her great grandfather, or from her grandfather rather, in the way that she built her business. Um, she also was focused and ruthless at times, but she was also very entrepreneurial and she built her own business outside of the Vanderbilt fortune. And that was something that she always strived to do was to get outside of this and um, did quite a career in acting and modeling and dated some really interesting Hollywood stars, um, had some flings here and there, and was pretty open about all of it. And a lot of it was documented by the, you know, page six every (laughs) single time that she did something. So for anyone who wants to, you know, catch up this it's on hbo it's on demand it's called nothing left unsaid and of course i am running long because i can never leave a word unsaid and we will be right back with the jim and mickey show any place any time is a good time for coke only coca-cola gives you that refreshing new feeling Back to the Jim and Mickey Show. You jack wagon. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White, and we're almost at the end of our show. But before then, we always go over our Trivial Tuesday uh, discussion. This is uh, something set up by Mickey, and yes, I'll be partaking of more. Uh, looking at some odd topic or something that uh, has just popped into Mickey's mind, and I salute you this week, Mickey, because you have found out a brilliant way to get people's internet passwords and the answers to their security questions. Because you ask people, <laughs> what was your first pet's name? And I don't know about you, that's usually one of the questions the banks get is the security code. So I look forward to your exciting new career in cyber theft. I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay, one, had not thought of that. Um, and two, stop it. What I did was, I, as I, as you know, as anyone who plays along and as our listeners know, I, I try very hard to create something on Tuesday nights that just kind of breaks up the monotony of whatever's going on on Twitter. And I attempt to do so by encouraging our brilliant and often way more hilarious um, listeners than I am, engaging them in these ridiculous conversations. And last night I found out that, you know, I, I, I shared with them the story of my first pet who was a puppy that they brought home, who was, I named Fluffy, who grew up to be a German Shepherd. So obviously, you know, you can imagine how fun that was for him as a dog. And as it turns out, we have a lot of listeners who who have German Shepherds. Several of them named Lady. 
Who knew? That's a very popular name. <laughs> However, um, extremely popular <laughs> name for Oh, my dog. God. Yeah, you, you just got bald by lady. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, like, you know, I thought Fluffy was bad, and the lady people were mocking me, and I'm like, I don't know. You named your dog Lady. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, but, you know, that I, I can only assume that is Disney influence with the whole Lady and the Tramp thing. I, I, that's all I've got. I, I can't that's help lady, them. I don't want to see Tramp. <laughs> like Tramp's going to whoop your ass. But anyway, um, so, you know, a lot of them had interesting names for their pets and a lot of really fond memories of their very first um, dogs, sometimes cats, sometimes barn cats. Uh, one of my friends from high school brought up barn cats, which made me giggle because I hadn't thought of them um, since the last time I was home, actually. Um, and to hers was Calico a barn cat and uh, several of our listeners though had some very unusual pets over the years and one of them included a snapping turtle one of our listeners had a snapping turtle that she brought home and apparently treated it as though it was a puppy <laughs> it this followed her listeners. around she slept with it it wasn't until it actually snapped at someone else that her mother got word of what it actually was. It wasn't a box turtle. It was a snapper <laughs> that she made her take him back to the pond where she found it. Yeah, we want to thank our listener Stumpy Nine Fingers for uh, <laughs> sending in that anecdote. So, so apparently, you know, and again, we had some reptiles in there as well um, and some unusual pets along the way. Uh, lots of chickens. We had several snakes and even a few iguanas. That actually and doesn't so, strike me as unbelievably unusual. You know, like I, you don't see them every day, but like, okay, they're not going to, you know, no one's heard about, oh, did you hear about, uh, you hear about John? He died in that terrible iguana attack. <laughs> I've seen lots of iguanas. People have them for pets. They're calm. They're actually in a weird lizardy way. They're kind of affectionate sometimes. And, and again, apparently we, our, our listeners like exotic pets. Um, we had a few chinchillas, several ferrets. Um, and so they also like rodents. That's what I got from that. Ferrets like rodents? That's true, I think. Oh, ferrets <laughs> like rodents. <laughs> <laughs> One man's pets, another man's mid-afternoon snack. <laughs> and it's bad because I look at a live chinchilla and I think, oh, it's so cute. And if I had ten more of you, you'd be even cuter around my neck. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Mickey, would, would, would her, hermit crabs even count as an unusual pet, or is that uh, just kind of yes, mundane? You had a hermit crab. I, my brother and I had two hermit crabs. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you have a pet rock too? No, no. You know, this, the shell was. It, it, look, when you have allergies, you you go for the pets you can <laughs> that are permitted, and you know. Okay, so yes, hermit crabs definitely count. You have to feed them. You have to take care of them. And I had lots of friends who brought them back from the beach. Like, that's usually how, like, yeah, they get they're not. They're generally not long-lasting pets. You don't think about, oh, you know, like you know crusty our crab. He was, he was such a good friend to the family all those years. When's know? the last time you fed crusty? I think February. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, everyone has different attachments to their pets <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know some of the more interesting stories did come from those that had pets that they didn't expect to last very long and then did uh, one was a rescue beta fish that you know they have a life expectancy of usually less than a year and he stayed with the family for four years so there you go Shout out it's to a miracle beta. fish 
It's Miracle Beta. So there you go. Um, thanks to all of our listeners who play along with me each week um, on Twitter. Just look for that hashtag Trivial Tuesday and hashtag TJams. Also, I, I know that one of our listeners reached out to you this week, Tyler, who um, on Twitter is at Raider Ute, reached out to you with some Snoopy information. Yeah, it was a fascinating story of uh, one of the daughters of, of Peanuts creator Charles M. Schultz. Um, I, I guess she converted to Mormonism, and there's been a, you know, a lot of interesting discussion about the faith of Charles M. Schultz, the times that Peanuts cartoons could be very overtly Christian, and then times where it could seem kind of non-denominational. Um, what I found fascinating was the the illustrations, which went off to, to religious camp and to do things like that. Um, if you may remember you know, Linus going door-to-door uh, talking to people about the Great Pumpkin, and generally, he would get doors slammed in his face and uh, uh, you know ignored and and mocked and all that kind of stuff. And it seems a portion of that <laughs> was inspired by his daughter uh, going off and doing these things. And he would do these little doodles in this these uh, margins of his uh, letters to his daughter. So just a fascinating little tale and aspect of uh, I'd argue one of the great pop culture minds of the 20th century uh, on there. So I, I, I'll probably sure put that link back up on the uh, uh, on the Facebook page as well. Yeah, we'll put that up there. Um, and uh, again, thanks to Tyler for sending that out. And thanks to all of our listeners for participating and sharing the show. We had a phenomenal record week again last week. We cannot do any of this without you. So thank you so very much for listening each and every week. I am Mickey White. He is Jim Garrity. You can find us at soundcloud.com forward slash Jim and Mickey show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Jim and Mickey show. And please give us a like while you're there. So you can hang out and join the community. And uh, we will be here next week, same time, same station. You've been listening to The Jim and Mickey Show. First, there was Violent Revolution, the standard for thousands of years. Kill the king. Kill the general. Then in the 20th century came the great leap to non-violent revolution. I have a dream that one day... And only a visionary like Dr. Farrakhan could spot the weakness of non-violent revolution. Marches have not worked. Like Socrates, Farrakhan pondered the failure of non-violent revolution in the form of a question. What are you going to do to move the forces of injustice if they won't bow to the truth that should bring justice? Well, move over, Mahatma. Wake up and stop dreaming, Dr. King. It's the new paradigm in resistance to oppression. Behold, the non-nonviolent revolution. Kill the president. With twice as many nons as non-violent revolution. Since we're going to die anyway. Turning twice as many cheeks. Because violence isn't the answer. And neither is non-violent. I didn't quite see it like that. It's revolution for the 21st century. Dr. Farrakhan's new non-non-violent revolution. In the heartfelt words of Malik Shaban. God, we don't forgive nobody. Not available in all states. Oh my God, you guys, this has been the best day ever. Don't you know her? Talking about a revolution It sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know Talking about a revolution It sounds like a whisper
Take what's there 